There we go. Let me pray for us, and then we'll dig in. God, we come to you tonight and confess our need for you and our need for your word. More than bread, more than food, we need your word to sustain us. And, uh, and so I pray that tonight you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and change our hearts through this. Um, help us to hear your voice in this, to know that this is you speaking to us and, uh, and to love you more because of what we get to hear tonight. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. We're in 2 Corinthians 11 tonight. So go ahead and turn there. I feel like I'm going to destroy that. Okay. So throughout this entire letter that Paul's writing, he has had three people in mind the entire time he's writing. There are three distinct groups in this audience. You may remember we talked about this at the very beginning. Um, and, and he's sort of always talking to all of them a little bit, but he really does kind of in different sections put a greater emphasis and direction towards specific people. So the first group that, that Paul is talking, and I would say a lot of this letters to them, is to what we might call the faithful majority. And that is this, most of the, the people from the church in Corinth who have stuck with Paul, who, who even though they may not have stood up for him whenever some people were attacking him the last time he was there and it caused some major problems, they, they still basically support Paul and they're with him. And so when he's talking about, hey, it's time to give the offering, when he's saying, let's make sure you are not unequally yoked with unbelievers, when he's talking through those things, that's, that seems to be primarily pointed at this faithful majority. Hey, show yourself to be faithful by doing these things. And then there's what we, uh, what we call like the rebellious minority. And that is the smaller group of people, those who, who turned on him, those who, who have said that uh, maybe his apostleship isn't legitimate and maybe they should be following other people. And then the third group that Paul never addresses, but they're always like there in the background as he's writing. It's, like he's, it's, it's almost like he's saying things to them without actually addressing them. Um, kind of saying things that he wants them to overhear so that they'll know, and that is the false teachers. And in uh, last week in chapter 10 is when we made the shift, and Paul sets his focus on the rebellious minority and kind of in the background there, the false teachers. Today, he's going to get a little bit more direct, even though he won't, again, he won't address the false teachers, but he'll get a little bit more direct in talking about them. Um, these teachers, just remind you, have swayed this minority by boasting of their own personal credentials and their superiority, that they are greater apostles than Paul, that they have greater abilities, that they have greater um, experiences, they have greater credentials and all these things. And so this is what Paul is going against. Tonight we start a section that is called, that, that has kind of come to become known as the fool's speech or the fool's discourse. Is, is what a lot of commentators call it. And this is where Paul will, and he'll say explicitly, I'm talking like a fool here. I'm, the things I'm about to say are going to be dumb. All right, is kind of the way that he's, he's going to start talking. Now, he doesn't do much of it tonight. Tonight is the prep. He kind of lays the groundwork and says, hey, um, get ready because I'm about to start saying foolish things. What Paul is about to do is he's about to start playing the false teacher's game. So the false teachers have been coming with their own human credentials and saying, this is what makes us so important. This is what makes us so uh, authoritative. This is what makes us so superior to Paul. Um, and they're pulling out their letters of recommendation and they're talking about their incredible skills and they're talking about their heritage that they have. And so finally Paul goes, okay, if you want to play this game, and he does it kind of reluctantly. He'll say, you're dragging me to it. You're making me do this. But if you want to talk human credentials, if you want to talk who has like the ability to come with authority, we can play that game. And he's going to start doing that even if it is somewhat apologetically. And also you're going to see that he does it with his own personal twist on it, which really will come to fruition next week. 
but you're going to see hints of it, that Paul will play their game, but he, he brings his own kind of flavor to how he does that. Um, technically, that fool speech, as I said, starts in 11 verse 21, but, but right now he's kind of laying the groundwork for it, and you'll see it here right in the very first verse. Actually, I, I just want to read through our text just so we can kind of catch the flow of it, and then we'll come back to it. So here's what he says. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So here is the groundwork for what he's getting at. And here is where he starts to take direct aim at the false teachers with a number of his statements. He says in verse 1, I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me. So he's saying, I want you to put up with me in what I'm about to do. Put up with the boasting that I'm about to do towards you, the way I'm going to brag about what's going to happen. And he's going to give them three reasons why, why I want you to put up with me. Three reasons why I'd like you to bear with me while I boast a little bit. Look verse 2 and into 3. For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So the first reason Paul says, put up with me, my boasting for a little bit, here's why. First of all, you need to know because I'm jealous for you. That's why I'm about to do what I'm going to do. I'm jealous for you. In Jewish culture, marriages, as, as you know probably, were arranged. So it was arranged by the parents for, um, to, to arrange for their daughter and then their son to come together and to be married. And when that happened, the engagement would often last around a year. And it was a very serious affair. When you were betrothed to someone, you could not break that off without an actual like legal certificate of divorce. It was that serious. Some of you guys will remember in the story of Jesus' birth that Mary and Joseph are engaged, and when he finds out that she's pregnant, he thinks she's been cheating on him. It was legally considered adultery, even if they're only engaged when that happens. And so it says that he had in his mind to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to put her through too much shame, but he did need to get a legal divorce to separate that. That's how serious it was. And so there's this serious arrangement, but they're not married yet. They're not together. And during that time, it was the father's responsibility to ensure the purity of that bride for the day that the wedding day came. He was to watch over her, to guard her, to, know, to make sure there was no other relationship that might have taken place, no other man that might sneak into the picture, and, and responsible for that. And this is kind of the picture that Paul has in mind. He says, when I came, I betrothed you, I arranged this between you and your bridegroom, Jesus. 
And, and that marriage is just as, as good as done. It is that official. We wait for the day when he returns for the, the actual wedding to take place. But it's as good as done. But I fear, Paul says, that, that even though my responsibility has been to guard your purity, to guard your devotion to him, that that might, that might slip away from me here that you might be deceived and move away from those things. And so he's afraid about that. And then he goes into his second reason for the boasting. Number four, for if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. That word put up there is literally the exact same word Paul uses in verse one when he says, bear with me, put up with me. So what he's saying here is, here's the second reason you need to put up with me. You put up with those idiots when they come and they do their boasting, so I need you to put up with this idiot while I do some of my boasting too. He says, if someone else comes and they preach a different gospel than the one I gave to you, 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 you're, you put up with it. You go with that. And Paul never in this letter actually specifies what the false teaching is. And he doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about like specific doctrines and lifting it up in 2 Corinthians, which is a little odd. It, normally when Paul is dealing with a specific heresy or a false teaching, he emphasizes the true teaching a lot or he'll speak directly against that. He never says that in here. Um, so we never really know exactly what these false teachers are teaching. All we know, we find out here, he says, it is another Jesus from the Jesus that I taught you. And they're trying to give you a different spirit than the Holy Spirit that I brought to you to receive. And they're preaching to you a different gospel than the gospel that I taught you. Paul places more emphasis in this book, not so much on what the teaching is, but on the way that it is shaping the the Corinthians. The way that it is um, shaping their life and causing them to live. And that becomes a very big thing for him. Um, uh, Here's one of the things Paul says about the way that it's shaping him. In a couple chapters he says, I'm really nervous that when I get there, I'm going to find that you guys are all acting kind of like I'm hearing, I say all, that this group of you, and this is what he lists off in, in chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. He says, I'm worried that I'm going to find quarreling and jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance and disorder, and impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery. This is the stuff that, that whatever these false teachers are bringing is starting to, to come to fruition amongst the church. It appears that what these teachers, from what we do see Paul talking about, and you've heard us talk about this, that they are speaking about the power that a person ought to be able to get from Jesus, a power that they ought to be able to get from the Spirit, and that was a power that would give them superior abilities and superior spiritual experiences, whether that was speaking in tongues or having these incredible moments of connection with the Spirit spirit and a superior authority the false teachers claimed that they had and superior economic standing they were doing well financially and hey you can too if you'll follow Jesus Um, so they were boasting about all this power that a person can get from Jesus without talking at all about the sacrifice that ought to come with following Jesus the the weakness that comes with following a savior that gave himself in weakness and and it's, we, we got to be careful any time that we try to take something from our context and force it onto theirs. It can be easy to read something and go, oh, that sounds just like this, and then kind of put that. So, so we don't know for sure, but I will say, the more and more I read out of uh, 2 Corinthians, and the more and more I read commentators on, on the background of it, the more and more these false teachers sound like TV evangelists sound like the men and women that are on religious networks when you turn on that talk about all the amazing blessings that God will pour into your life if you'll just have enough faith and how He's going to make your life better now. And, and, and often they will boast of the authority they have in the spiritual realm or, or in areas of blessing and those kinds of things. It sounds so similar to basically anybody you might see preaching on TV. I don't want to lump them all in, but pretty much almost all of them. Um, It sounds just like that, and this is what Paul seems to be dealing with. Here he'll go on in verse 5. He's going to give his third reason for them putting up with them. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. So the third reason, you put up with them and Paul says, trust me, I am not inferior to them. 
So if you'll put up with them, then I need you to put up with me too and the boasting that I'm about to do. Um, he, he, which is kind of interesting. If you were here last week in chapter 10, verse 12, he says, we dare not compare ourselves with these, with these false teachers. And now Paul is going to go ahead and say, give me a second, I'm going to compare myself with these teachers. All right? Um, and, and I think he may have been kind of speaking sarcastically last week when he said it. Um, because now he's going to go ahead and do it, and he's going to show the comparison off a little bit. Um, and, and I believe, um, I, I believe you know, pretty strongly that, that that phrase, that word, super apostles, it's a made-up word that Paul makes up, we don't find it anywhere else, um, is, is, should be put in quotation marks. That Paul is, again, sarcastically or ironically referring to them as super apostles. That may, that may have even been the phrase that they kind of use for themselves. Um, but so he, he, he uses this, these super apostles and says that I'm not inferior to them. He says, listen, now I may be unskilled in speaking like them. Remember, that was a big deal for them. Their ability to speak and their ability to, to be so um, amazing with rhetorical skill. But he says, but I am not lacking in knowledge. Now, this is kind of fascinating because Paul has said this several times. That I know you're not impressed with my speaking ability. I know I can't stand up to the way they speak. I know that they've, they've got me beat in that area. I'm, I just speak plainly. I'm not a great communicator. And some people have wondered what it was that Paul was seen to be a really good writer, but maybe not a good speaker. Maybe I, I've seen some even say maybe he had some sort of speech impediment or something like that. Um, actually, is, I, I, I'm unsure if Paul is really that serious when he says these things. When, when we read through the book of Acts, Paul seems to have a pretty good grasp on rhetorical device and the ability to communicate things effectively and clearly. Now, you could argue, and I would totally go with you, that a lot of the effectiveness of Paul's speaking is the Holy Spirit. And I would say amen, and Paul would say amen. But he seems to know his way around a speech. And so I think what Paul may be getting at is not that he's unskilled, but that he, he, what he's saying is, I, listen, I may not speak like they do. I may not speak in the same manner as them. All the attention on making something sound pretty without really getting into the deep uh, content of it around it. There's actually this guy that was um, living right around the same time as Paul. Just uh, he actually his life overlapped with Paul by about 20 years. Dio Chrysostom or Chrysostom. Um, at that time, and he was a famous order, known for his great speaking. Actually, that word Chrysostom means golden-mouthed or golden-tongued, like he's that incredible of a communicator. And he says something almost identical to Paul in talking about the almost same kind of group of people, the sophists. That's who we've been talking about, these people who are famous for their ability to speak. This is what Dio Chrysostom says. He says, um, uh, for they are clever persons, mighty sophists, wonder workers. But I am quite ordinary and prosaic in my public speaking, though not ordinary in my theme. So he's talking, he's comparing himself to them, and he says, these guys are such incredible speakers. These, and, and again, it almost sounds like exaggeration, these wonder workers. But he says, but I, I'm not all that great. By the way, he's recognized as one of the great orders of the first century. I'm not all that great compared to them, but my theme, my content is rich. And that's what I think Paul is kind of getting at, is that, listen, I just don't speak like them, if that's what you're looking for. Verses 7 through 9, Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Here's another one of the major differences between Paul and these speakers, is the orders of that day um, were famous for charging their listeners a fee for their speaking. Listen, um, gifts like this, the knowledge that I'm going to bring to you um, tonight, that doesn't come for free. And so they expected people to pay them for that. And Paul did not do that. Paul says, if you go back and read 1 Corinthians 9, and I think he'll highlight it again in the next couple chapters here, but in 1 Corinthians 9, he makes it clear, I had a right to get paid by you. 
I could have gotten paid by you. I should have gotten paid by you. But, he says, I refused that right. I didn't want that. And so I put it aside, choosing to work with my own hands. Paul had developed a trade as a tent maker. And so he would work during the day, oftentimes in the market, to support himself. And he says, and, and when I was unable to support myself, or when needs were stronger than that, brothers from Macedonia, who we, we've always ta- already talked about, a church that was a region that was very poor, those churches would send money to support him. And so he says, I refuse to do this. And his opponents took shots at that. They took aim at this idea. And there may have been multiple issues going on. One of the main things could have been that they were going, listen, if, if the content that he's giving you is free, then you know, well, you get what you pay for, right? He, he, he clearly is not that great, and he knows it, because he's not even asking for money for his services. Or they could have been asking, what's his angle? If he's not charging you now, then, then what's, what's he trying to get at? What's this big offering he keeps talking about for the Jewish church? You really think that's going to the church in Jerusalem? Uh, another thing that may be at play is that this Paul's refusing to get paid by them and to live um, this lifestyle where he's this teacher on one hand and he's also this guy with dirty hands, dirt under his fingernails, working and sweating all day in the marketplace. That just looks kind of bad on the Corinthians. See, in that day, like your leaders, the people who stood up in front of you, the people who led the charge were gentlemen. They were the people who were kind of of high class. They were the people of the nobility and the people who had money and in a in a culture like Corinth where people were obsessed with upward mobility, that just doesn't look right if our leader's that guy over there who's got dirt all over him and who's been working hard. No, no, no. That's, that's not the kind of respectful person that we need leading this church. And it could have been that that just that seemed to look bad on them. Another thing at play is it was very common, we talked last year about this, but when a gift was given in the first century, it was a way of establishing a relationship with someone. And it was kind of expected when I give you a gift that you would reciprocate with gratitude and with further gifts that would create this relationship. And it could be that when Paul refuses that, they go, what, you too good for us? You don't, wanna, you don't want to accept our gifts? You don't want to enter into this? But Paul says, no, none of this is true. Actually, he says, my lowering myself is a demonstration of the gospel because I am living out exactly what Jesus did in humbling himself, in choosing to go without so that he could make us rich. Paul says, I'm trying to do the same thing. And no, I'm not, I'm not refusing you. No, I'm not bringing you down. I'm actually exalting you. I'm lifting you up. I'm showing you my love by the way I do that. Look at what he says in verse 10. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. So here's where you actually start to see hints of the way Paul is going to play the false teacher's games, but he's not going to play it by their rules. He says, I am going to boast and you will not be able to shut me up. I'm going to boast about this all through your region. But what is it that he's going to boast about? What human accomplishment is he boasting about? I'm going to boast that nobody pays me money when I speak. That's, That's his boast. I will, and and no one's going to be able to shut me up about this, that I will boast that even though these guys can get paid a lot, I'm going to boast about how little money I make doing doing my job. And and so what Paul is doing is he's taking this, it is a somewhat human accomplishment, he chose to do this, but he's twisting it on his head because nobody brags about how little money they make. But Paul wants to do that, and that's a hint of things that are about to come next week, and Paul's going to get crazy in the next couple chapters about the kinds of things that he boasts over. Verse 12, And what I am doing, I will continue to do. That is, I will continue to work for free among you. What I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Um, So here's another reason Paul works for free, to make it clear that he and these super apostles are not even in the same category. They keep wanting to compare themselves to me. They keep wanting to say they're better than me. They keep wanting to say that you should follow their authority instead of mine. Listen, we can't compare ourselves because we're in two completely different categories. I come to you out of love for God and love for you. And and Paul basically says, tell you what, stop paying them and see how long they stick around. They're not there for you. 
They're not there because they love you. They're not there because they care about you and your devotion to Christ. They're there for their own name and they're there for their own pocketbooks. And so he says, I'm going to continue to teach like this and to refuse this right to, to undermine, to undercut all of their claims to authority, all their claims to be kind of like me, to be an apostle like me. And now it's about to get real. Now Paul kind of goes off in verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. So Paul says they claim to be super apostles. I'm telling you, they're false apostles. They claim to be apostles of Christ. I'm telling you they are deceitful workmen. They claim to be your servants or servants of righteousness. They're servants of Satan, is what he says. Now, this is harsh language, but, but here's what's really crazy. From everything we can tell, and I believe this is probably true, these false teachers are not unbelievers who are saying, tell you what, won't it be awesome if we can go in and trick this church into believing that we're Christians? That's not what's happening. These are people who call themselves Christians, who believe themselves to be Christians, who believe themselves to be doing ministry. So guys who had, you ask them, who is, who is like the Son of God? And they go, Jesus. And they go, are you a follower of Him? Yes, I'm a follower of Him. I love Jesus. Don't you love and, and And so these people are coming in and teaching, and Paul is saying some pretty harsh things about them. These are people who identify with Jesus, who believe they are doing actual ministry. And, and I think today... If we saw something like this, we might say, um, well, they've got really good intentions. They're trying to do the right thing. They're just misguided in what they're doing. Or I could see myself saying something about them like, you know, I don't agree with them. I don't agree with some of their teaching. I don't agree with their ministry philosophy. But hey, we're ultimately on the same team. Paul shows up and he says, no, they're the devil, right? And he goes and says, these are actual, just like Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, that's what these people are doing. And we go, Paul, that, that sounds so harsh. They, they're trying to do the right thing. They think they're doing something good. And Paul goes, no, they're not. They're, I don't care how much they have deceived themselves into thinking they're doing the right thing. But from Paul's view, he says, you cannot be the kind of person who is always aiming for self-promotion to raise yourself up. You cannot be this kind of person who is always trying to get more power or someone who is making light of sin. You cannot be the kind of person who is stirring up jealousy and division in the church and then say that you are a part of Christ. When those things are true of you, you are not on his team, Paul says. And as uncomfortable as it may make us to say things that harsh and to label somebody a servant of Satan when they're trying to do ministry, Paul has no problem with it. He says, I call it like I see it. And this is what I can see. You cannot call yourself a Christian if you're living this kind of life, if you're doing those kinds of things. Still, one might argue that Paul is crossing some lines here. The whole tone, if we're honest, the whole tone of this little section here, and maybe this letter as a whole, kind of has this like jealous boyfriend ring to it, right? Um, this kind of like bitter ex-boyfriend, ex-girlfriend, or current, you know, who's, who's angry and so who makes these kind of exaggerated statements against somebody. Okay, we know that they're bad teachers. We know that maybe they're doing the wrong thing. But servants of Satan, Paul, come on, man, chill just a little bit. All right? It sounds sometimes like he's crossing some lines as he tries to... He even uses this phrase, jealous, to describe himself at the beginning of this. I am jealous over you. And that's why he takes all these shots. So here's the question. What makes Paul feel justified in acting this way? Why does he feel like he is able to say such strong things about these people? Why does he feel he is able to write this kind of way? Why does he feel like he is justified to call himself jealous over them and get so angry about that, even to the point that he would say these people are false teachers and have nothing to do with Jesus? Scott's going to talk about that here in just a couple minutes, but we'll take a break and then come back to that. Okay. So what you got? Yes. 
Christians are very susceptible to believe that man buns are cool. <laughs> man buns. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I like it. I feel like a lot of what we hear is like college is your time to like find yourself and like follow your heart and like chase what you want, and that's so like anti-biblical. Yeah. But that's a lot of what we do every day. Find yourself, follow your heart. Great Disney themes, but not real helpful in life. Okay, what else? I know you guys are talking about a lot of things. What? Oh, you need a long resume, yeah. Yes, make it look real great. Use fancy paper, that always helps. Oh. Well, we could, that needs to be, that needs to be a series. That's a really good one. I need to be in a relationship to make me, to make me happy. How about life after college is going to be easy, or you're going to have more time, uh, you're going to have a lot more money, and you're finally going to get to have the body that you've always wanted. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, or yeah, or the opposite of that. Now is the time. Live it up. So there's a lot of ideas that go around. Um, I, I think the what's interesting, what I think about is, um, how is someone deceived? How are you deceived? Do you know? Like, can you tell when you've been deceived? And when when do you figure it out? You figure it out, right? Do you figure it out before? It gets bad? Or do you figure out after it's kind of taken root? Like when, it's, this, is, this has been kind of racking my brain this week, thinking about this. I've had some aha moments as I've thought back on my life and, and wondered uh, about times when I was deceived. Because here's the thing, like husbands and wives don't go to sleep one night and then wake up the next morning and go, you know what, I think I'm going to have an affair today. I think, I think I'm going to find someone else today to cheat on my spouse with. That's not how, that's not how it works. Um, followers of Jesus don't go to sleep one night and then wake up the next day and be like, you know what, I think, I think I'm done with church. I think I'm, I think I'm just going to live for myself from here on out. I, I, I got this. I don't really want to live for him anymore. I'm going to live for myself. Like that, you guys all know this. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes what? Yeah. Those kinds of things take time. Like, and so we're going to see, I think, what happens in here. Um, what scripture, how, how Scripture kind of describes this process is pretty interesting. But I remember, I remember the first time I saw this. I can remember exactly where I was. I was in Joplin, Missouri. I was sitting in a single-ride trailer on a couch right across from the one that my wife and I lived in. In a, in a trailer with this couple, Joel and Kelly, they were our closest friends at the college. I lived, we lived uh, in this marriage housing, they called it, on campus. It was single-wide trailers held together by duct tape and caulking. It's horrible. Um, but it's only up from here, babe. That's what I kept saying. Only up from here. Uh, anyway, she bought it. But... But this couple that we got really close with, we were, we were in a small group with them. In fact, Jim and Andrew Johnson were professors. Jim was a professor at the college. He and Andrew had a small group. And Ryan and I had just gotten married. And this couple had just gotten married. And another couple had just gotten married. And so he had us all over. And we had this life group together, a small group. We met every Sunday night because we didn't have class on Mondays. It's awesome. Four days a week. But we had class at 7 every morning, Tuesday through Friday. So that was a trade-off. But no class on Monday, so we would go over there, we would, we'd study the Bible, we read books together, we'd stay up late playing cards, awesome time. About a year into this, Kelly started being kind of distant with us, she stopped hanging out as much, she wasn't as available, she was working, blah, blah, blah. And then Joel, my friend, caught her with another guy, um, some 17, 18 year old that she was working with, and caught them in a car together making out. So he, he instantly, I mean, he freaked out. He, he called me, um, and as soon as she got home, he asked us to come over 
to as like part of part of his community and um it was it was crazy i mean i i never really had been through that seen that recently married you know and uh and i remember sitting down and i remember just really wanting to know how how does this happen like how do you go from you're at bible college your husband's studying for ministry you're in a small group we like and so i asked the question um just tell me about your relationship with god all this time she you know she said oh god and i are fine i have i have a great relationship with god what she wasn't saying was god loves me regardless of my sin god is not going to abandon me god is good to me he, she wasn't saying that what she was saying was very disconnected from reality no i'm good good with god god and i are fine we talk all the time and i i didn't know what i didn't know what to do i i just was dumbfounded like is that possible how how is that possible and and what i what i experienced by seeing it in her i began to realize is true in my own life like the moment i realized the moment i have realized over my life when i was deceived i call them like come to my senses moment that's that's a phrase used in the niv the old niv in in luke 15 the story of the prodigal son right right when he he takes his father's money and he goes and he wastes it and then he finds himself sitting with pigs wanting to eat what they're eating and he goes and it says it actually says he came to his senses or it came to he came to himself and he realized my father's hired men eat and live way better than i do i'm just going to go back and see if he'll let me like be one of them right so it so says this repentant moment but he had this come to his senses moment and he realized how he, i mean he just woke up in a pigsty and and i've had many moments like that moments where i i realized um that marriage wasn't meant to make me happy that took several years into marriage to realize i think i believe that now if you would have asked me when i got married do you think this is supposed to make you happy like the, the whole point of this is to make you happy scott if a pastor asked me that i would have answered with no because that's a that's wrong give but it took me 7 years into my marriage to realize i think i'm looking to my wife for my happiness and she's and and she's failing at it <laughs> cuz she's not meant to um huh so i believe that wow i didn't know i did that uh moments where i realized ministry wasn't really about me um being exalted and i i went to bible college I mean the the theme of our college is um like serving like Jesus like like it is teaching the word of Christ in the spirit of Christ with the humility of Christ it's to go and serve not to be served I mean it's those are the kinds of things that were pounded in me at Ozark and it took me several years into ministry to realize I was trying to build my own little kingdom I wanted to be the best blah 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 in ministry that I could be Maybe I'll get to speak at a conference sometime. Maybe I'll write a book someday. Right? Those are thoughts that if you would ask me, Scott, is this ministry about you being exalted? I would say, no, it's about Jesus. And then and then you have these aha moments where you realized this is why I keep getting frustrated because I am I've I've been deceived. I've bought into some lie and I'm now being able to see it for what it is. Have you had one of these moments? You had a moment where you've realized I've been buying into this idea for far too long and it's caused me pain and it's caused people around me pain. Anybody? Anybody? Like okay, a couple of you are shaking your head. Yes, okay. I'm not alone. Okay. I'll I'll keep going then cuz I thought maybe if there for a second I was the only one. Um Here's what I here's what I've come to realize about deception. Uh well, actually it's more about us. We are not we are not um good people who get tricked into doing sinful things. Like um like these these this church in Corinth because they had allowed the influence of culture 
to creep into the church. Hello. They, 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 they thought about success in a certain way. They thought about faithfulness like importance or, um, you know, gosh, if, if Paul really is who he says he is, this is, way, this is the way he should look. This is the way he should talk. This is what his ministry should look like. And that was deeply influenced by, by the culture, not by Jesus. They didn't look at Jesus and go, oh, Paul looks like Jesus. Maybe, maybe he, is, he is the right on. Um, they were influenced by something else. There, there was an idea that, that, that these false teachers came in and allowed their idea to be brought to life. They just fuel to a fire. Um, this is the way I think it's happening. Because we're not just good people who are tricked into being sinful. We're actually sinful people who, uh, notice Drew used this phrase, and the, the Bible uses this phrase, put up with, okay? We're sinful people who often put up with bad ideas that take root and then eventually bear fruit as sin and as hurtful and harmful things. Listen to this, or read, actually, I'm gonna, I have PowerPoint tonight, what do you know? Um, 2 Timothy 4.3. This is really insightful. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound, sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So what, what he's saying is, like, there are some people who, they just want to hear what they want to hear. And, and when they hear what they want to hear, all of a sudden it, fuels them to do the things they want to do. In this case, turn away and wander off. So, why is being deceived a bad thing? Because when bad ideas take root, they bear fruit, and it's harmful. It's destructive. It hurts your relationship with God, hurts you, hurts those around you. And yet, in the middle of it, me and God are fine. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm doing great. Really? Really. Because you and I can't always see it. We can't see it in ourselves. That's, this is why following your heart is such a terrible idea. The Bible says, you know, your heart is deceitful above all things. Like, you, you, your heart can deceive you from within. It's a crazy thing. And, and, I, and I think if you, if you take some time to think about times in your life when you have deceived you, um, you might be more inclined to be open to the things of God. I honestly think. If you can, in some sense, trust yourself less, you might trust God more. So why is it a bad thing? Well, because of how destructive it is, which is why the Bible says that God is a jealous God. So I want to talk about this idea of the rest, of the, the rest of our time, about God being a jealous God. Um, and why is it okay for God to be jealous, and, and why is it not okay for us to be jealous? It seems to not be okay for us to be jealous. So the Bible talks about jealousy in two ways. Um, the first is this, that God is a jealous God, and He honors those who act with His jealousy. Okay, I have lots of Scripture here. We're going to fly through some. You might just want to write down references. Um, But God is a jealous God, and He honors those who act with His jealousy. So in that, there's kind of two ideas. God is a jealous God is the first one within this first one. Here's Exodus 20. This is the giving of the Ten Commandments. I'm just going to read verse 5. It's in the context of carved images and idols. He says, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay. Here's a few more, Exodus 34. You shall worship no other God, um, for the Lord whose name is jealous, he says. His name is jealous. This is God speaking, by the way. The Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Actually, it might be Moses speaking. I'm not sure. I know the next one is, is God speaking. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
Zechariah 8.2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Okay, and then this one in Deuteronomy 29. This is a really good one. This, this one describes what I think to be this process of, of from being deceived to walking away. Uh, he says, Beware, lest there be among you a man or a woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. Does a root bear fruit? It's, it rhymes, but it doesn't really bear fruit. Trees bear fruit. So a root grows into a tree that bears fruit. Do you see the process that he's describing? But, but notice when God calls it out as a root. Not, not when the fruit comes. Not the fruit of poison and bitterness. But he calls it out as a root. It's interesting. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, he's talking about the law, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. In other words, no, me and God are doing fine. I'm doing great with God. I pray all the time. What do you mean? This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against, I like that, God's going to smoke him, will smoke against that man. And the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name under, the sun, under heaven. So, when God gave the law to, to Moses and to his people, he, he told him, here's all the things that I, here's all the ways I will bless you if you follow my commandments. If you stay in covenant with me, this is how I'm going to bless you. If you choose to obey, if you choose to abandon my covenant, this is how I'm going to curse you. God was very, very clear at the beginning. Follow me, stay in covenant with me, obey my commands, I bless you, you don't, I curse you, and these are, here's how I'm going to do it. He's very clear. And I just love that he describes this as this process of someone kind of walking away. Now, the other part of this, where he, he honors those who act with his jealousy, we have a couple examples. Um, the first one is in Numbers 25. Phineas was the grandson of Aaron, the brother of Moses, the priest, Aaron the priest. And, and um, so the Israelite people were, were allowing... Actually, Israelite men, specifically, were allowing foreign women to come into their families and bring with them their idols, and God was not having it. He, he burned with jealousy. He was angry towards His people. And so God caused a plague to come among the people. And, and so Moses says, what's going on, God? And, and God says, your people are taking on other idols and foreign women and all this stuff. And so he, Moses has the, the chief men of those clans that are doing that hanged. Okay, along with, this, along with this plague that was killing people, he had the, chief, the chiefs hanged. And, and it says, while they were weeping, this man, this Israelite man, takes this Midianite woman and walks right into his tent, right in front of everyone. Right when these men are being hanged and, and, and people are weeping. This guy takes a, takes a girl into his tent to be with her. And Phineas picks up a sword and he goes and stabs them together and takes them out. Okay, and, and, and then this is what it says. The son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel and that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel my jealousy. 24,000 people died, and it stopped the moment Phineas killed these two having sex. It's not really a Sunday school story you probably heard um, when you were growing up, but it's in there. The other one is, is our text today, 2 Corinthians 11. Paul, with divine jealousy, right? I mean, Drew talked about it. Paul, Paul talked, if you just kind of look at his tone, 
He's getting pretty intense. He's angry. He's, he's using sarcasm. He's, um, he's not afraid to shame them or te- like make fun of these super apostles. Um, and he's speaking with pain because he's, he recognizes what's at stake. So, um, th- that's the first way. The second way is that jealousy is listed as a sin. So you have God is a jealous God, and he's cool with people being jealous with his jealousy, but he's not cool with our jealousy. So I didn't list, I didn't list this. This is all over, all over the Old Testament times in which, because jealousy doesn't just end with jealousy. It ends with usually anger and violence is kind of how it ends. And so there was, there's ways to make sacrifice for this, for this kind of thing in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's all over the place. It's listed in, where is it? Uh, Romans 13, 13, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, 2 Corinthians 12, 20, which is in a couple weeks. Galatians 5, 20, James um, 3, 14, and 16. So it's listed, anytime there's a list of sin, it's listed in these lists. So sin, is a, sin and or jealousy is a sin. When we do it, and um, so I, I just find that interesting. Um, Tim Keller uh, preached a sermon on the jealousy of God, and I really should have just hit play and played it because um, it's really good. But I'll summarize a couple things that were really, really, really good for for me to hear, and, and he does a great job of summarizing some things. But he talks about the the difference between human human jealousy and godly jealousy. So I'll, I'll give you some, some of highlights of what he, he talked about. Um, but So we know that, that human jealousy is envious and selfish. Um, 1 Corinthians 13 talks about love, and there's a line in there, love is not jealous. Right? So, so the kind of love that, that God is promoting is not jealousy, but yet, um, jealousy kind of starts looking like love. It looks like it's love. It looks like it's, wow, they really, they really, you know, like in a boyfriend-girlfriend context, if someone's jealous, it's like, wow, they really like me. They really love me. They're jealous for me. And it may start that way, but it doesn't end that way. It, it's, it's envious, and it ends selfishly. Um, I'll get back to that in a second, but there's a really good example of jealousy in the Bible, and it's, and it's Saul, Saul's jealousy toward David. So, you remember the, the song that they would sing? Um, Saul kills thousands, David kills tens of thousands. So it's when that kind of started to happen. Now David is working on behalf of Saul. He's killing it, literally, for Saul. And, and, yet, and yet Saul is jealous of David because the people's the Israelite people's love he was David was robbing Saul of that love that's how Saul saw it that's how he saw this happening is 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 that David was taking their love he was taking it from them and it and it somehow became a part of him and so you know the story Saul wanted to kill him Saul chased him in the wilderness for 10 years of David's life how many of you are in your 20s? Okay, so David most likely ran for his life during his 20s as the anointed king. That's pretty funny. As the anointed king. Um, Jared, could you... Where's, where's Jared? I'm right here. Yeah, could you... Please. Um, okay. No, so David ran for his life during his 20s because of the jealousy of Saul, this sinful thing. That was taking place. Like I said, envious love is selfish and it becomes about you. Um, So here's the line. Human jealousy is love gone extinct. It's love that becomes self-centered. Human jealousy is love gone extinct. It's not really love. It's it's love gone extinct and it it becomes self-centered. But godly um, jealousy... It's a little different. We see a great example in Paul. Um, he's angry. He's upset. But he's upset because he loves them. So godly um, jealousy 
stays love. It, it remains as love. It stays committed to rescuing the person. It, it stays committed to wanting what's best for the person. And so godly jealousy is love fighting extinction. It's love that truly wants love for God to grow and thrive. I, I, I firmly believe that true love is helping someone love God more. It's not, it's not helping you love me more, and it's not helping you love you, love you more. So oftentimes those are the, that's the motivation that we have when we're trying to love someone. How do you love someone? Think about it. How do, you, how do I love them? Why do I love them? What do I want to be the result of my love? And if it's, I want them to love me more, or if it's, I want them to love themselves more, then I think you're selling it short. Because when, when you help someone love God more, you do both. If, if they love God more, they learn to love everyone better, including themselves. So, I, so godly jealousy is helping someone love God more. It's wanting to fight for that. Um, fight for their, for their love. God describes His love for us like a marriage. This text is a great example of that. Um, I betrothed you to one husband. It's marriage language. It's marriage talk. And that's interesting because God, God seems to um, talk about his, his relationship with His people in this way. Um, there's a great text. in. Well, if you haven't read Hosea, it would be a great um, prophet to read. And so... You, you see this picture of a husband who is um, chasing after a bride who is unfaithful and but is persistent. And God says, that's me in the church. That's me in Israel. That's, what, that's what's happening here. And, and I, I, find that, I find that interesting. He wants it to be exclusive and intense, His love for us, our relationship with Him. He wants us to be perfect. He wants us to be happy through holiness. He seeks after us um, to find fulfillment and fruitfulness that is out of this world, produced by a peace and a passion that can't be explained in this world. Like That's what He wants for us. And, and, and so His jealousy for us is anything that detours us from that, or anything that distracts us, or, or takes away, or hinders, or, or hurts us from being fully connected to Him, in relationship with Him, um, representing Him to others, and then carrying out the responsibilities He's given us. I mean, like, that's what it's about. So, in light of His jealousy, what does Jesus want from us? Paul is clear here that the bride is to be um, betrothed to Jesus. Like, the, the, we are His church. We are His bride. Jesus is a jealous husband. So in light of His jealousy, what does Jesus need, want from us? I think the first one is clarity. I've got three things, okay? Clarity of relationship. So you need to have a DTR with Jesus. You need to, you need to, you need to sit down, and I'm serious. You need to sit down and you need to say, Okay, who are you to me? First of all, who are you? So I'm going to answer that question. Who is he and who is he to you? Those are two, two different questions. I want to answer the first one, but only you can answer that second one. Who is he to you? That's a great question. Um, here's, what, here's who he is. Here's what the Bible says. John 1 says he is God. Um, the, the, the Christmas story in the gospel says he is Emmanuel, God with us. Colossians 1 says He is supreme over everything. Hebrews 1 says He is the exact imprint of God. He is the final word and revelation of God. The rest of Hebrews says He is better than any religious system. He is the perfect man who's paid for our debt. He's a perfect sacrifice who's atoned for our sins. He's a perfect priest who is interceding on our behalf. He's a perfect king who's been victorious over sin and death. And, and He wants to be your one and only. And so, that's who He is. But only you can answer the who is He to
to you question. Who is he to you? He wants to be your one and only. He wants to be your now and forever. He wants you to live for him and enjoy him forever. And he's your perfect husband who is jealous for you. Now, guys, I want to talk about how weird it is that Jesus is our husband. Okay? Let me, let me, because I was saying that in my head going, that sounds weird. Um, so, I don't think it sounds weird to me anymore. It used to sound weird to me. Uh, um, I would never think about Jesus like my husband, obviously. That would be weird. Um, but, here's, but here's how this isn't weird for me to think about this. is because, one, I, what I believe this means is, right, so the, the church is the bride of Christ. You guys have heard this? Right? So we're the bride. So we are the church. We're the bride of Christ. So we're his bride. All right? Finally, the ladies are like, yes, finally. It's always male things. It's finally feminine things. Anyway, so it's our turn. But still, this isn't weird for me because I, what I believe this means is Jesus loves us with an intensity and a passion that I, that I probably don't even fathom. I know I don't fathom. That you and I don't even, can't quite comprehend. He loves us with an intensity and a pursuit that is, that is beyond us. And that's cool. I don't find that weird at all. The other thing is, practically, he gives me a model of how he wants me to love his bride, his church. Like, he, so, I, I was just um, at a, what's it called, panel, I was in a, on a panel at Lightbearers for, it was a few of us from different churches, and, and we were talking about why it's important to be a part of the church. And one of the girls asked the question, I have a friend who, who doesn't go to church. She doesn't think it, she, she's a Christian, but she doesn't ever want to go to church. She doesn't see the need. She goes, yeah, I understand the community part, but I can get that somewhere else. I don't need it. Um, imagine saying that to Jesus. Like, I like you, Jesus. I just can't stand your bride. Like, I, I like you, I want to hang out with you, Jesus, but if your wife's coming, then forget it. I would not be okay with that, right? If you said you wanted to come over to my house, but you kind of didn't want my wife to be there, I might get a punch in the throat. I don't know. I don't know what I would do. I, I don't know. I would have to really repent. I don't know. Um, but that's, so Jesus loves his bride. And he calls us to love his bride the same way. And she is imperfect. We are imperfect. I mean, that's why Hosea is such a beautiful book. But he gives us a model of that. And, honestly, he gives me a model of how to love my bride, Ryan, um, with sacrifice and service and leadership and all those things that, that Hebrews or Ephesians 5 talks about. So, that's why it's not weird for me. Men, that Jesus is our husband. I'm going to continue. Um, you, need, you need to have a DTR with Jesus. Here's the next one. Loyalty to Jesus. Oh, we're going over. Um, he desires loyalty from us. Jesus wants to be our first love. He wants us to be set apart to Him. So, questions you need to kind of think through is, what, what, is, what does spiritual adultery look like? Are there good things that are becoming God things to you? Are you chasing happiness at all costs? See, God, God gives real happiness. Not, not um, empty, fleeting thrills that don't, that don't last and don't do anything else. God gives real happiness that is rooted and grounded in something deep, like joy and, and gratitude and sacrifice and love. And um, you can't get it anywhere else. Jesus is after our happiness and it's, it's on the other side of holiness. Like he's pulling us along. And holiness isn't easy, but he's taking us somewhere. 
which is what Ephesians 5, 25 through 27 talks about. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. His love has a purpose. So, his love has a purpose, and it's, and it's, to, it's to present us perfect to himself. So, wives, wives, ladies, whatever you are, those of you who are not married, um, someday, on your wedding day, you're going to want nothing more than to look as good as you can possibly look for your husband. You're going to want that moment to be special. You're going to want the first time he sees you, you're going to pick out the best dress. You're going to, you're going to hire somebody to do your hair. You're, or maybe not if you can't afford it. But you're going, to have the best per, you're going to have the best person that you know who, with the least amount of money to do your hair and your makeup and all that. You're going to spend all kinds of time on that part because that's what you want in that moment. You want to be as perfect as you can be. And, and so Jesus wants that more for us than anyone, than anyone we could imagine. He's our perfect husband. And he's wanting to work on us, sanctify us, to present us to himself as perfect. He wants to be your first love. Third is intimacy with Jesus. That's what he wants from us. He wants to be close to you. He wants to be close to me. Um, he says, I give you myself. I give myself to you. Give yourself to me. He surrendered to death for us. He wants us to surrender to life in him. He wants to spend time with you. And I believe, I believe He's given us ways to do that that specifically help us stay close to Him. One is His Word, obviously. He wants, he wants to speak through His Word to us. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, training. That's 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, he wants us to stay connected to His church. He, he wants to speak through His people to us. He wants us to practice the one another's, and in doing so, it sanctifies us, loving one another, confronting, forgiving, admonishing, carrying one, another, one another's burdens. Like this is how Jesus wants to remain close with him, allowing his spirit to speak through his word and his people. He wants to be close to you. So as the team is getting ready to come up here to lead, um, so Jesus loves us with a, with a love that is out of this world, and, and he demonstrates that through his life, death, and resurrection. See, human jealousy, um, human jealousy that looks like love will kill one another, will kill the one who, who does not love them back. Right? We, we see this in the news. Human jealousy that looks like love will kill the one that doesn't love them back. But godly jealousy that is love will die for the many who don't love, them, love him back. And that's, that's what's amazing about this gospel. That's, what, that's what's amazing about Jesus. So, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, as they are, well, they're already up here. But, as you are sitting there, and as someone's going to turn lights down and um, take over, whatever, I, I'd like to give you just a couple minutes, like for them to have maybe a couple minutes, to just, which of these three things does Jesus want from you right now? Which of these three are, are the most pressing that he's, that he's asking of you? And then we will sing.